All right. So those of you who don't know who I am, uh, my name's JT Outlaw. Um, I am the director of discipleship uh, here at Restoration Church, and um, I'm preaching tonight. So if you came tonight and you were hoping to hear Chris, um, sorry, you'll have to come back next week. Um, but um, actually, I, uh, I joked with Chris last night um, that, you know, this is the irony of life for, you know, if you're a Calvinist, you can call this God's sovereign humor, uh, that I would be preaching this particular passage in Mark. Um, a few months ago, I actually was given the opportunity to preach previously um, here at Restoration, and we were studying the book of Jonah. And if you didn't listen to that sermon, uh, this is a shameless plug, by the way, you can listen to it on our podcast. Um, it's up. It's available now. Um, you'll just have to scroll back a bunch to get to Jonah. Um, but to save you some time, essentially, um, I argued that the book of Jonah um, is a prequel to the much-awaited main event that we find in the New Testament. Um, that Jonah was actually pointing to something greater than himself. Uh, well, tonight... I get to preach on that main event, and to be frank, I'm absolutely pumped that I get to stand up here and preach the, the sequel or, or what we've been waiting on. Um, so let's go ahead, we'll read our text, and then I'll pray for us. So this is God's Word, uh, Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Lord, we, we come to you tonight um, just in awe of who you are, Jesus that you, uh, that you would come to earth um, in the form of man, um, that you would walk the life that we are incapable of living, um, and that you would die the death uh, that we deserved on the cross, Lord. Um, Lord, you are, um, we see glimpses of your humanity all throughout the Gospels, but um, rarely, do I take the time to really take a step back and consider uh, your deity, who, who you were uh, before you came to earth in the form of man, um, that you were God. And Lord, tonight as we look at this passage um, and we consider uh, the overarching biblical narrative that, um, that you've written, Lord, um, that we would be in awe of, of you, not just as Jesus the man or Jesus the teacher, but uh, in all of you as Jesus, our God, um, thank you for the privilege of, of being able to preach tonight, and um, I ask that 
uh, the words that I speak are your own and, and not mine. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So, if you were raised in the church, doesn't matter the mainline denomination that you were raised in, Baptist, Methodist, whatever, Presbyterian, um, you've heard this story. I guarantee it. You've heard the story of Jesus calming the storm. Um, it's one of the staples of Bible discussion. It's in three of the four Gospels. Um, the placards you hang in your dining room, some of you might have something relating to this passage. Maybe you saw it on a pillow that was embroidered at your grandma's. Something about Jesus calming the storms in your life. Um, if you actually go on Hobby Lobby's website, uh, you can type in literally two keywords, Jesus and storm, and it'll come up with a picture with some calligraphy on it that you're more than welcome to buy. It's $9, and it says, it says sometimes God calms the storm, other times he calms the sailor. So there's all sorts of things that we've heard. It's, it's just ingrained into our culture. We've seen it in some capacity, right? Um, we're familiar with this story. Um, but this story has essentially been parsed down and used by our culture to affirm that God wants you to be safe, um, that he will take away your hardships, that he doesn't want that for you. Um, or even more dangerously, and this is something that you might find in some mainline uh, churches nowadays, is that the point of this passage is that there is always a miracle waiting for us on the, so on the other side of every difficulty. I would argue that's not true. I would argue that, that none of those are really the point of this passage. Um, tonight we're going to look at how this passage displays God's sovereignty throughout the overarching narrative of Scripture, uh, going all the way back to Jonah and before that. And it's going to show us ultimately how we should respond to Christ's holiness. So first, because of the frequency frequency with which we have heard this passage, I want us all to take just a collective step back and we need to first consider that this story is true. Right? That this actually happened. This isn't just, you know, a story, a bedtime story we've heard over and over and over again, even though we have heard it over and over and over again, probably starting in Sunday school. This story is true. I think a lot of times with biblical passages that we've heard over and over and over and over from the cradle all the way to the grave is that we lose the awe and the authenticity that's present in the text. So hopefully this doesn't come across as patronizing or demeaning in any way, but I just I want all of us, myself included, to just consider the context of what is being expressed in this passage. These are real people who in the midst of a terrible storm were terrified. And they observed in their terror something that was even more frightening. We mustn't miss the narrative for the punchline of Jesus wants to calm your storm. The disciples, they were in dire straits. The situation was serious. And these aren't men who are unaccustomed with seafaring, right? Earlier in Mark, when Chris preached on, I think it was chapter 1, Mark made sure to communicate that the first disciples were fishermen. These guys have been on the Sea of Galilee before. 
They were on it every single day, day in and day out, from sunup to sundown. They were familiar with it. This is not a situation that's due to inexperience. And just a quick geography lesson about the Sea of Galilee. Um, I know Chris has mentioned this before. If you don't have a study Bible, please go and pick one up because this is something that's found in just about every study Bible that I looked at. Um, And this is a very, very important piece of information to understanding the story. Um, By the way, if you don't have one and you want to pick one up, you can actually buy a great study Bible, the NIV study Bible by Zondervan. They have them for sale at Ollie's over by Lowe's on college. So you can pick up a Bible that's normally like 30 bucks for maybe like 10. So no excuses, go pick one up. If you don't have the money, come talk to me. I'll buy one for you from there, okay? Um, but these, these aren't men who are unaccustomed with seafaring. And, and just a quick geography lesson about the Sea of Galilee, it sits 696 feet below sea level. So if you thought New Orleans was low below sea level, The Sea of Galilee is way below sea level, right? So because of that, the heat that ends up coming off of the Sea of Galilee, whenever the surrounding mountains, the cold air from the atmosphere, it comes down through the valleys and it meets the warm air coming off of the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee constantly, to this day, constantly has storms that will show up like that just in a moment's notice. There's no way to tell. Meteorologists now in Israel and in the Middle East, it's just kind of like, hey, it's going to storm today. (laughs) Just be prepared. Um, So this creates conditions for the perfect storm, both figuratively and literally, right? It's not an easy place to be a fisherman, but these guys were used to it. Guaranteed, even though it doesn't say it here, Because they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, they had seen storms before, right? So this wasn't their first rodeo. This wasn't something necessarily that they needed to be frightened of because they have experience in this, but they were. So that shows the severity of the storm at hand. It was out of their control. They were literally at their wit's end here. The boat being tossed back and forth with waves crashing over the side and filling the boat. That's what we see here. That's what Mark says. The boat was filling with water. So imagine strong, burly fishermen who were just ripped because they're pulling in nets day in and day out. Okay, these are big, tough dudes. They're bailing water out of the boat with buckets. They're tightening lines. They're trying to get everything figured out because they don't want to die. And they look back, and they see Jesus, their rabbi, sleeping. (laughs) They're working so hard to save themselves, just bailing that water out. And they look back, and Jesus is, it says, on the pillow, on the cushion, asleep on the cushion, in the middle of the worst storm that these men have ever seen in their entire lives. Can you imagine the frustration and the desperation that filled these men, especially when they looked back and saw Jesus? They were probably just a little bit upset, right? (laughs) 
I know I would be if I was if I was in a boat and it was sinking and I looked back and I saw Chris, my pastor, asleep on the cushion in the back of the boat. I would be so mad. I would be so angry. So now that we've set the stage, we kind of have an understanding of what's going on here, that this is actually happening. This boat is sinking. These men are experienced sailors in a very, very difficult place to be a fisherman. Let's consider what Mark is communicating with this passage. Because the author always has intent, right? There's always context. There's always a reason for why they write what they write and why they write it in the way that they write it. So we know that Mark is writing the testimony of the Apostle Peter while he's in Rome. He's writing to a church that is not compromised only of Jews, but at this point it's Jews and Gentiles who are unfamiliar with Jewish custom and history. We also know that the purpose of this gospel is to promote Jesus' call to discipleship all the while giving an account of Jesus' life while displaying that he is the culmination of God working through the nation of Israel. He's providing that context that the Gentiles need. They need to know who Jesus is, and Mark is trying to give them as much information as possible. So that's why it's important to note how Mark has chosen to tell our passage. The language Mark uses should stir in us, if we're familiar with the story of Jonah, it should stir in us a remembrance of that story, of the story of Jonah. Which makes sense, right? If Mark's trying to create a universal thread, or he's trying to expose this universal thread that's running all throughout Scripture that ties Jesus to the history of Israel, he would certainly call back to the the prophets, would he not? So whether directly or indirectly through the way that he's telling his story. So first, we need to recognize where they're leaving and where they're headed to. So in verses 35 and 36, it says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So Jesus had just finished preaching from a boat to a crowd on the shore. And not just any crowd, since they were in Jewish territory, it was a majority Jewish crowd, right? So Jesus then tells his disciples to pack it up. We're heading to the other side. Let's get in the boat. I'm, I'm done here. I've said all I need to say. So if you want to know where they're headed, you can either do two things, all right? You can either study ancient Middle East geography, or you can just read ahead. <laughs> I would say just read ahead. Don't waste your time with ancient Middle East geography. Um, so it's, it's important to note that across the water, if we read ahead, we find out where they're going. On the other side, we have the country of the Gerasenes, Gentiles. They're not Jews. So he's leaving the nation of Israel. He's leaving the Jews to go to this other people. 
And this is important to note because the original readers, they would have been far more familiar with the geography of their time than we are. So when they're reading this, they don't have to read ahead. They just know because they live there during this time. They know, oh, yeah, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it's the Gerasenes. Duh, everybody knows that. So the connection would have been made for the original audience where they would have known immediately, oh, hey, yeah, that, I, I see what you're doing there. And this is important because this is the first note that we have of Mark calling back to Jonah. Jonah was the prophet who did not want to be the prophet because God told him to go to a foreign people that would be hostile to him, right? So what did Jonah do? Jonah spent his time running away from God. And that's what brought him to the boat, and that's what took him through the storm, was he was running away from God, right? Here, we see the complete opposite. We have the true and perfect Jonah, the true and perfect prophet, who says, hey, pack up our things. We're going to this hostile land. They need to hear what I have to say. This is a better fulfillment of what Jonah was meant to do. <laughs> Jonah was the prophet who resisted going to a foreign land and a hostile people. He climbed in the boat. He headed the opposite direction. And you're going to hear me say this a lot tonight, but Jesus is the true and better Jonah. And that's something that Mark is trying to get at. So let's look at 37 and 38. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So they take their boats and Jesus, exhausted from a day of preaching. I mean, I preach for 30 minutes to 45 minutes and I'm exhausted when I get done. I can't imagine doing it all day, screaming from a boat inshore. But he's exhausted. He lays down to rest in the rear of the boat on a cushion. And this isn't the main point of the sermon tonight, but this is a unique fact. Uh, this passage is the only passage where we're told of Jesus ever sleeping. Nowhere else in the Gospels is there ever an account of Jesus laying his head down. And I think I believe that that was meant to display one thing, and that's Jesus' humanity in the midst of this story. But we'll get to that in a moment. So everyone remembers Jonah sleeping through the storm, right? So we don't really need to go back, look at that. Jonah was asleep too. Jonah was on the boat, storm. Sailors were doing their thing, very similar to the situation we have here. They're trying to save themselves. They're throwing things overboard. They're praying to their pagan gods please save us, and Jonah's asleep in the hull of the boat. But strangely enough, the response of the people aboard the ship is similar. During both storms, the men are doing everything they can to survive. Jonah's captain goes to rebuke him, and then he summons him to pray. The disciples on Jesus' boat wake him, 
and they rebuke him by asking if he cares that they are about to die. Similar responses, similar situations, right? But the disciples' response in this passage in Mark, it's unique to Mark's gospel. If you read this passage in Matthew or Luke, their request is much, much softer in tone. If you go to Luke in particular, they say it, it, it kind of reads like, Hey, Jesus, wake up. We're dying. <laughs> Can you save us? But I think this is a deliberate choice by Mark to point back to Jonah to show the responses being the same here. And I also think we need to remember whose account this really is. Mark wasn't there. Mark's not writing his personal account. He's writing the account of Peter. The same Peter who likes to rebuke Jesus. <laughs> the same Peter who cut a dude's ear off. Um, he doesn't really have a reputation for subtlety or gentleness, right? That Peter. Um, but then we, we really get to the, the real distinction here between Jonah and Jesus. Jonah admits that the storm is due to his own disobedience. He recommends that the sailors throw him overboard to quell the storm in God's wrath. When the sailors hesitantly toss him over, the storm ceases. God ends the storm. Jesus' response is much different than Jonah's. There is no guilt. There's no disobedience on Jesus' part. Jesus doesn't even really rebuke his disciples. He stands up, he walks out, and he rebukes the sea. He rebukes the storm. The threads that Mark is pulling here, they show us what was meant to be all along. How Jonah, the reluctant and disobedient prophet, was an imperfect picture of what history had to look forward to in Jesus. So in 39 it says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We aren't told but I'd imagine Jonah didn't say very much when he was thrown overboard. We know that he sank to the bottom and he was eaten by a fish, but I can't imagine it'd be very easy to say anything with a mouthful of water. <laughs> but here, what we have is Jesus turning and literally getting to the heart of the issue at hand. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That is a tough pill to swallow. Especially considering all they had seen Jesus do up until this point and the parables that Jesus had just taught them before they picked up the anchor and started heading for the other side. Literally hours earlier, Jesus had taught on about how God sustains and completes his plan according to his will. And they meet a storm, and 
all of that teaching goes out the window. But are we really surprised by the response of the disciples? I mean, don't we do the same thing? We leave Sundays, our quiet time, or our discipleship meetings, convicted by something in Scripture, and then we just forget. (laughs) We just go about our business. We go about the rest of our week, and we just forget. We forget God's sovereignty, and we forget his power in the midst of our circumstances because we can't see past ourselves and our own weakness. Ultimately, I think Mark has achieved in tying this passage to the story of Jonah. But there's one last thing here that should really give us pause when we read this passage. And it's the final reaction of the disciples. So in verse 41, it says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. The disciples are afraid. The verse says that they are filled with great fear. I mean, the storm passed, but they're still afraid. They got exactly what they wanted. They wanted the storm to be gone. It's gone, and they are terrified. Why is that? Because unlike the sailors in Jonah, who responded in fear by praying to the God who saved them, the disciples begin to mentally connect that they are in the midst of the Lord. They might not entirely understand it yet, but they're, they're starting to get there. And you know what? You know what's scarier than the storm? The one who controls the storm right? The one who created weather. The one who formed the earth from nothing. That's who's scarier than the storm. Jesus doesn't invoke the Father to calm the storm. He rebukes the storm. He commands creation. So when I read this section when I read this story, I can't help but liken it to a really suspenseful scene in a horror movie. And I know that sounds really strange, and that's probably like an out there comparison, but just hear me out for a second, okay? Every good horror movie, there's one in particular that I'm thinking of, The Conjuring, which is absolutely terrible in the best way possible if you like horror movies. But every good horror movie has that one scene where the tension just builds and builds and builds. And usually it's accompanied by some sort of weird, like, like organ, like high pitch, just like, and it just like gets like louder and louder. And it's just building the suspense. And the character that you're watching, they just creep down the staircase into a pitch black basement and they grab a match and they light it and they look. And what's in the basement is so much more terrifying 
than what you were expecting it to be, right? Your expectations in that moment, they're completely subverted because you thought it was going to be one thing and it turned out to be something worse than you ever imagined. The terror lies not in the basement, but in the fact that you truly had no idea. The unknown and the unexplainable, it makes the hair on your arms and on your neck stand up. Is that not what happened here? (laughs) In this passage, the disciples asked Jesus for help, and he completely subverted their expectations. They probably went to him and they were like, teacher, like, you're the guy that's got the line to God. Why don't you get up and pray or something or pick up a bucket and while you're throwing stuff over, be praying to God to help us. And he did not do that. (laughs) What he did instead was he displayed his power and his holiness. He did what only God could do. He did what the God that saved the sailors in Jonah's story could only do. Jesus did that. And the disciples were terrified. Their God, this whole time, was asleep in the back of the boat on the cushion. And they had no idea. Their fear in that moment was a healthy response to Jesus. Fear. Fear of the Lord. One that I believe we are lacking in our day-to-day life. Too often, we think of Jesus as the gentle grace offering, picks up kids, puts them on his shoulders, you know, meek-mannered teacher from Bethlehem. That description isn't wrong. (laughs) But when was the last time you thought of Jesus and the hair on your arm stood up and you felt a healthy fear of the Lord? R.C. Sproul, in a message he delivered at a uh, Desiring God conference uh, for pastors in 2007, um, he said this. He said, If you go through the pages of the Old Testament and the manifold accounts of human encounters with the living God, You cannot catalog the responses of the human to the supernatural, the transcendent, the divine one, in the sense of having a response that everyone is the same. Some people, when they encounter God in the Old Testament, they are reduced to tears. Others fall on their faces. Some are stricken with silence, while others are reduced to terror. What do you think of Habakkuk in his watchtower demanding an answer from God. And when God appears to Habakkuk, what does he say? Habakkuk says, I saw and my lip quivered and my knees shook and rottenness entered my bones. Job shook his fist in the face of God and demanded an answer from God. And when God appeared in the fullness of his majesty, Job said, I saw and I placed my hand Upon my mouth, and I will speak no more, because I am vile. That's the common response to the presence of the supreme alien, to the one who is supremely other. 
And we see this, dear friends, no more vividly than we see it in the reaction to the earthly ministry of Jesus. When we read scripture, we see Christ's humanity. He slept on the boat. But we should be constantly reminded that he is far above us. Healthy fear of God, of Jesus, produces a people who have no fear. What it truly is more frightening than the creator of all things. So we should let our fear of God serve as an encouragement because the most high is our perfect father who loves us. So as we close tonight, I just want to read one more thing. Uh, We sing it often, but I want us to take some time to just stop. We're not going to sing. I'm just going to stand up here, and I want to read some lyrics to In Christ Alone. Okay? And the verses are going to be up here on the screen. And I just want you to follow along and read as I read these verses out loud. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. No guilt in life, no fear in death, This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Let's pray.